Welcome back to the Moody Profcast. This podcast seeks to explore the intersection between theology and our culture by discussing these various topics with the faculty of the Moody Bible Institute. Today, I would like to welcome our second guest, Dr. De Rose. Dr. De Rose is a professor of literature, English, and homiletics at the Moody Bible Institute, where she has been for over 50 years. She earned her MA in English from Northeastern Illinois University, an MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a PhD in language, literacy, and rhetoric from the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's also the author of the book, Unseduced and Unshaken, The Place of Dignity in a Young Woman's Choices, and has been an editor for over 11 books with Moody Publishers. In addition to teaching, she regularly appears on Moody Broadcasting Network programs and as a guest and co-host, and speaks at conferences and seminars. Uh, Dr. De Rose, thank you for coming on the show. How are you feeling today? I'm, I'm good. Early in the morning, I'm fine. <laughs> oh, yes, it is a cloudy morning, Monday morning at 8 a.m. here in Chicago. And yeah, I'm happy to have you on the show. Honestly, this is probably one of the episodes I've been most excited for. Dr. De Rose is a legend on Moody's campus. <laughs> uh, this is her actually her last semester here at Moody, so it is full, a great full time. Yes. Full time, yes. Yeah, I'll be I'll be here part time in the fall. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. So, yeah, it is a great honor to have Dr. De Rose here on the show. She is just chock full of wisdom and experience <laughs> and knowledge for this generation and for this time. And so I'm so excited to have you on the show and to discuss about the various topics of literature and how we can integrate how technology relates to us today and the differences you've seen in generations across your time here at Moody. So we could just jump into the first question right here. So tell us how you came to fall in love with the intersection between theology and literature. Well, I was raised on the mission field and always in Christian circles. And my grandfather was a revivalist. I have four missionary aunts and uncles. It just goes on and on. So the Bible has always been there. And, of course, I got started teaching very young when I was only 22 at Moody, kind of by divine accident. And then a few years later, my mother suggested to me that I go to seminary, Mm. as did another professor who had been at Moody. Um, Seminary put my life on the map where theology is concerned. I absolutely loved it. My theology courses were my favorites. I had terrific teachers, kind of well-known names. And I began to see more and more. And I think I had always taught literature from a very practical and biblical standpoint. But I began to see that there was a huge intersection between theology and literature, which has been noted by many, many people. In fact, one of the first things I give to all my classes, literature classes to read, is a piece called Theology and Literature, which was the composite of a magazine uh, many years ago. And it It's four pastors and a well-known writer and teacher who discuss very specifically how every great preacher needs to be literate and read literature because it informs you about life. So then I began to think about creating courses that combined the two. And my very first one was Images of Christ in the Novel, which is the incarnation in the novel for both secular and, and Christian. And then A Theology of Suffering and Violence and Grace in the Novel. And then thirdly, uh, Monster Lit is the affectionate title of the course, in which is a theology of sin and and consequence in the novel. Mm, yeah, I I remember it's always the joke. It's like I wonder if I'm going to pass De- Dr. De Rose's <laughs> class here at Moody. Um, no. she, yeah, it's she's very overstated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never had the honor of actually uh, taking you for any of your classes, but I believe you subbed for one of my C.S. Lewis lectures. Oh yes, when Do- when Mrs. Redelnik was ill. Yes, yes. So yes. I remember. I, there's still several points from that lecture that I remember oh, that sticks to me today. Screw tape letters, yeah. Yes, that was a 
fascinating lecture that Thank I was able you. to sit under. So tell us a bit more about some of maybe your summer favorite pieces throughout time about how literature has really informed your understanding of who God is and your theology. You know, literature exists alongside the Bible in my life from the very beginning. My mother read to all of us on the mission field copiously. And I can remember David Copperfield and the palpable sense of consequence in some of the characters' lives, the sense of growth and what they had to learn the hard way. Uh, I, I even remember children's books like The Wise Woman by George MacDonald, which I think should be a must-read for everybody, in which the discipline of God comes alongside two different kinds of children and will not let them go until they have really shown a discipline of spirit. Uh, in my 20s, my life was profoundly changed, sometimes in a weekend, by the reading of several novels. One of them was Till We Have Faces which showed, by C.S. Lewis, which shows the nature of diseased love. Another one was uh, The Cocktail Party by T.S. Eliot, which shows what happens when you simply do not make a decision to be a certain kind of person. And then The Great Divorce, which shows you the terrible patterns in our lives that get in the way of Christ and which can cripple and haunt us. So there are so many. I teach all of them, actually, whether it's Paradise Lost, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Graham Greene. There are just so many that specifically come back to me and very foundationally Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. I was raised on Pilgrim's Progress. My mother taught it to small children. She taught it to us. I've read it multiple times. And I, I don't think there's a week that goes by that I don't think of a scene in it that informs my life. Mm. What are some of those particular scenes that you remember? Uh, I, I particularly remember the scene of Apollyon, where he, which is a, a, a satanic character, where Pilgrim has come out of the house beautiful and been really trained and discipled by three women, actually. And he meets Apollyon, and Apollyon reminds him of his sins in the past, and he tries to disturb his position in Christ. And it's done as a physical battle where, where Pilgrim receives wounds, Christian receives wounds, and Christian says to him, you can remind me of all the sins you know, and I can tell you no more, but I am positioned in my faith and conversion in Jesus Christ. He says it much better than that. So that's one of them. And then I always think, particularly as I'm getting older, and I have I, my brother died in the fall, and then my my father and mother, of course, are gone. But I think of the river of death and how differently we come to death. Some people accept it well, and I think we have very sentimental ideas about how we're going to die. But some people really struggle with death, and Pilgrim does. He almost drowns in the river of death, but he gets across to the shining ones at the other side. Mm. But there are many, many, many. I could go on and on. The interpreter's house. He learns his theology before he actually comes to uh, saving faith, before he loses the, the, the burden on his back. And in that interpreter's house, I probably talk about two or three of those scenes every single year to my students. Uh, one of them is the reality of judgment, that we must not take judgment lightly. There is consequence for sin. Mm -hmm. So I'm, more, I'm also interested in some of the C.S. Lewis books that you've been able to interact with and dissect. What are some of your favorite pieces from uh, C.S. Lewis? Uh, in nonfiction, Mere Christianity, which I taught for probably 25 years to freshmen, maybe more, and that one is so good because I never forget the principles of the natural law and how the natural law haunts everybody. Even those who insist that it doesn't will all of a sudden say it's not fair. And it's not fair is a statement of knowing that there's a right and a wrong. It, it's a very good little apologetic primer. But, of course, C.S. Lewis moved beyond apologetics. And he began to feel that fiction was the way to teach people about life and even faith. 
Uh, and everybody knows about the Chronicles of Darnia and the one that is very meaningful and the one I know the best. That's one of those things. C.S. Lewis had just died when I went to college. So his stuff was not, I didn't learn, ever read his stuff till much later. And I wasn't raised on him because we were sort of contemporaries, you know. So, uh, uh, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a beautiful portrait of Christ. I used to use it in Images of Christ. And what's so marvelous about it is that so many of us have a hard time relating to Christ, honestly. He seems like a guy with really good hair, looking at you with smoldering eyes, and never smiles, never laughs, doesn't talk. One of my students said once that Jesus seemed to be like the kind of guy that would never date me, which is a funny line, but it's I think we're remote. And he brings it down to Aslan. And Aslan loves the girls, and he loves them all, and he corrects them. And he, when he's a lion and he takes them on a great a um, journey on his back through the sky. He he licks their faces. He's he's every, people who want to rediscover Christ can rediscover him through Aslan. And Lewis said once a little boy wrote to him and said he was afraid he loved Aslan more than Jesus. And Lewis said no. In loving Aslan, you do love Jesus. And then till we f have faces is a profound study in a person who has suffered terribly and who grows bitter. And she wants to make another human being her focus. So she makes Psyche her focus. And she becomes obsessed with Psyche. And she wants her to fill the void in herself. And what she must learn is you can never make one physical person the void in yourself. You must at some point throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Yeah, it's definitely fascinating how, in a sense, you know, Jesus himself used analogies to help yeah, describe uh, the Christian life right. as well and how... Literature and various pieces of nonfiction help us to expand our imagination That's in terms exactly of how to right. think. Well, how did you describe this whole process of how literature and nonfiction help us to form our, our minds and how we think? Well, the difference between I, – I, let's stick to, to fiction because it's a very different process in nonfiction. Unless oh, sure, the nonfiction sure. illustrates itself with literature, which some books do. Yeah. But when a nonfiction piece or a sermon, say, has like 10 things you should do not to be a certain way, um, 10 steps to sexual purity, 10 steps to less depression, and it's a list or mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's something that's thrown at you with should and not. When you read a great novel, and I think about the one I'm going to be teaching this semester to freshmen, my last, my last time to teach freshman English, uh, is is Too Late the Fowler Oat by Alan P Patton, who is a South African writer. And it's a story about a man who is tormented by uh, sexual temptation because his father has treated him so poorly and how my students resonate with it and how they look at it. It is so much easier to receive something from a story that isn't pointing a finger at you. You're simply living alongside the character and all of a sudden the literature cuts your throat, brings you to awareness, makes you want to change, makes you feel understood, like the character in Shadowlands that says, or the, character, the, the guy that said to Lewis, student that said to Lewis once, we read to know we're not alone. So that's what great fiction does, much better than nonfiction. Nonfiction mm -hmm. has a great purpose, but it's no accident that 75 or 80% of the Bible is narrative. Mm. So I have always resonated, for a long time I resonated far more with the Old Testament than the New, because it was story after story after story after story, and you could see and you could feel and you could enter into the lives. And the Gospels are like that, too, with mm. Christ. Yeah, it's definitely, I think I'm, I'm fascinated by kind of how our generation and a lot of people have focused, when it comes to reading, they think self-help. They think these nonfiction mm -hmm. books that will tell you and 10 steps. And the church steps. pushes that. 
And the church pushes that as well. And it seems like the great classics are also mm-hmm. dying as well. And what is some things you have observed about kind of the, the change in how people interact with literature? It seems like literacy rates are almost maybe declining in, in the States as well. And Americas are very low, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think that the church and preachers, frankly, have not done a good job of incorporating great language and the great classics. They're much more interested in theatrics or in style or passion, but enthusiasm without content is simply empty. It's Mm. vacuous. The greatest preachers I ever knew are the most literate ones. And if you hearken, I can even remember the change in Founders Week from, since I've been here 53 years, uh, how, how solid they were, how many intensely, they weren't therapeutic deism. They were intensely biblical, well illustrated by a bunch of guys in old gray suits, nothing, no leather jackets, no holes in their jeans, and it wasn't about style. It was about their experience with God, which showed in a kind of maturity and stuck to Scripture. And But I think there has always been, not just this generation, among low church evangelicals, by low church I mean not liturgical, by low church evangelicals, to dismiss fiction as something you do, you shouldn't waste your time doing it. I don't know how many students say to me, I quit reading when I was about 10, 11, because my parents thought that was not as important, or other people didn't think. I was delighted by what I was reading, but suddenly it seemed it was better to read a nonfiction book or a how-to book. And this is a failure, hmm. both in the Sunday school curriculum, from the, how many preachers do you know that ever quote a classic or talk about it? We, Chris Costaldo this year in chapel, quoted a classic. I think it was Dostoevsky. This this is a highly unusual. I had a pastor at Moody Church. I attended Moody Church for about 10 years under Warren Wearsby. The man was so literate, it was staggering. And none of the cheesy little modern classics either. And he, he loved Pilgrim's Progress. Every service was church history, great literature. And it, it not only elevated your thinking, it elevated your language, and it gave you something to think about. There was leftover margin at the edges. Hmm. Yeah, that is definitely fascinating how we've kind of forgotten how to incorporate yeah. literature and rhetoric and how to how we preach as well. I want to kind of explore something I was just thinking about right now in terms of how the formation of our imagination in our minds. You were talking about liturgy, and I believe I've heard that you used to attend an Anglican church. I did correct, for about 10 years. For yes. about 10 years. Yeah. Do you see a, maybe a parallel between how liturgy forms our mind and also how literature yeah. and reading can form our mind as well? We, I think we have... Uh, we're, we've overstated spontaneity. Hmm. I've taken to, in my classes, reading prayers to the students because I think sometimes God looks down on us and he said, he says, you're kind of mumbling around. Why don't you read me something? There are a lot of good prayers out there. These articulate prayers. Yes, I, I, don't, I wouldn't call myself an Anglican, but for 10 years I did attend an Anglican church, which I, I sadly left because it, it became woke and I couldn't do that. But it was it, what I loved about that church and I had been missing in, in I had gone to a, a, a covenant church for about 30 years, had a wonderful experience, but it began changing, modernizing and contemporizing. And I'm not knocking that, it's just not my taste, uh, but it doesn't have the elegance or the respect for language. So I started going to an Anglican church and what I just, and I, and I remember the first Sunday I went, I fell asleep, not because I was bored, but because I was at, so at peace with the beauty of what was going on. We we don't think about beauty anymore. We, we're an ugly society. We even think we can jump up and down in torn jeans before Jesus uh, in worship. And I do attack that because I think it's a lack of respect. 
I don't think we are thinking about our worship. I think we have become personalities of worship. We're supposed to disappear while the worship extends itself to, to Christ. So when I came into this Anglican church, which was uh, not not one of the city ones, mm-hmm. uh, it the elegance of it, the, it wasn't perfect. The children were way too loud. But there was an appointed prayer system. Every Sunday we would do a, a, a certain prayers that to me were beautiful and did not lose their magic. Now, I must add this caveat. I think there are people that are raised in liturgical churches where it has been mumbo-jumbo. Christ hasn't lived there and some Episcopalian churches, some Lutheran churches, and they they end up going to secret churches because they have had no life in their liturgy. It happens with Catholics, too. But coming from the other direction, the carefulness of it, the music was, it wasn't, it was not a core, it was an organ, but it was, it was a group that thought about what they sang in the songs. Everything was thoughtful. Mm. It wasn't slapped together. There was silence. There was a moment for this. You knew what was coming, and you looked forward to it. The homilies were 25 minutes. I'm not sure I think any sermon should ever be over 30 minutes anymore. Craft it better, do it shorter, and leave us something to remember. I think we're supposed to come before God with order. Order, beauty, and thoughtfulness. Mm, amen. Yeah, I, yeah. there's so much I personally resonate with you as well in terms of how our structure in our worship really should reflect who God is and his character and his essence. And I've definitely sensed that as well in terms of like the call and response, the organization. Yeah. I think John Calvin himself said that any preacher who preaches more than 20 minutes is is committing us in a pride, I he believe. He said that. Yeah. I love Calvin. I didn't know he said that. Now I can quote him. <laughs> That's yeah, great. It's brilliant. I, that is brilliant. It really, yeah, it's fascinating in terms of how we've kind of in a sense, like restructured our church liturgies to be very sermon centric, yeah. rather than liturgy. The whole thing, the sermon becomes a part of an organic whole. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, yeah, and as I think it makes me think about what it means to be embodied worshippers as well, in terms of like a holistic whole being, right? That's very and so, good. Yes. And it's similar to how literature as well can help to flesh out the other areas of our mind that are maybe more creative. Yes. Um, maybe the right side of our brain is how they say it as well. And I think I want to talk a bit more about maybe a theology of aesthetics. How does um, beauty play into how we relate to who Christ is and maybe even in terms of apologetics as well? I, I, was, I wish I had my lecture here from the Student Theological Society. I gave a whole lecture on the theology of beauty. Mm. And I'll try to remember some of what I said. Uh, when, as I look back on my childhood and I spent on the field and uh, and then just my travels throughout my youth, I think of some of the great, beautiful moments. My mother, who uh, believed that there should be beautiful, she, they were very, very poor, but she thought there should be beauty. And she brought her china and she, you know, we didn't eat off paper and we had meals together. Well, that's one of the terrible missing things in this generation because of technology. And it, there, there is, she, she believed in flowers and just pretty things. And then I I remember huge moments in my life of traveling in Europe when I remember seeing the Pieta for the first time. And the gorgeousness of that statue, this was in 71 before it had been damaged by a maniac who came through and hammered on the, on the face. Now they have plexiglass in front. But how you would just speechless in front of the order and beauty of that. Uh, I think you think even of things like Listening to 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 my my father used to sing torch music to my my mother and the beauty of romance you know I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places that this mind 
this hole of mine embraces all day through. I'll find you in the morning sun and when the day is new. I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you. The gorgeous, it wasn't come on baby, do it to me. It was this gorgeousness, this beauty. And today it's loud, it's atonal, it's focused on me. There is no dressing up for anything. I, I, I think that in the evangelical church, we, there's a lot, I'm an evangelical. There's a lot I believe. I'm a disappointed evangelical. There's a lot I, I, I we believe in, in beauty, I mean in truth and goodness, but the triumvirate is beauty, truth, and goodness. We stop at goodness and truth. So um, it, we think we got to get the truth out there. And sometimes our, our sermons are way too simple and plain, or they hammer you with things that you already know, but they don't adorn them or couch them in any beautiful way. We need beauty too, because beauty is what sings to the soul. Beauty is this, and this is one of the problems with the technological generation too. We're never looking up anymore. We are always looking down. We are not looking at the real thing. We're looking at the Instagram. We don't walk along the lake or through a, a, a gorgeous uh, flower show or a park or a foreign place that, that, that is famous. We walk in it to take the pictures of it, to send it back to our friends. We are not present to it. Beauty demands presence undistracted presence. When I take bike rides along the lakefront, I don't carry my phone. Okay, if I fall, I fall. You got to die somehow. You know, we, I don't, I don't go to the lake to take a picture of it. If I'm going to go take a picture of it, I go to do that. But that's separate from my presentness. We're not present to each other. We're not present to the world. We're not present to the faces on the street. And it's a contradiction of terms. We are, we are so mired in the now, in looking down Yes, and, and sometimes the church doesn't think enough about beauty. They think about entertainment or what works. And certainly the crafting of a sermon is a very, very hard job. A homily takes me 20 hours to create, even 25 minutes, but I've thought about every word. And I think one of the things about the Anglican and Orthodox churches too and why students are going there more often and not all of them do it well either is is because there is more care taken with the homily. And my particular Anglican church, the, the rector, uh, his, his homilies were often literate and in the most understandable of ways. There has to be a care for language. There has to be a care. You know, you can tell when you hear, heard a good preacher because you're kind of sitting in silence or you think about something they say. You're, you're, you're spellbound kind of. One of the tragedies of Ravi Zacharias's demise was that he was a preacher who brought us beauty all the time. He preached with eloquence and beauty, but and that's what makes it so sad when the fall comes of somebody like that. Yeah, it's fascinating. I remember from the the lecture that I said under you, this you made one point about what true experience and true living is: is that the more senses you engage, the more you're experiencing a certain task. And I've definitely seen that as well. Like I think about. I'm really not a big fan of the worship from home, like church from home. Obviously, I think I read oh. an article that talked about for disabled people and people who are bedridden. Yeah, this right. is a great like, this revolution for them. But for the majority of churchgoers, it has just been totally an abstraction from the church experience because really you're engaging two senses. 
Whereas if you go to maybe like an Anglican church, more in particular, it's more emphasized where you're, you're on your knees, you're partaking in communion. And I, I think I want to explore this notion of like how we've become abstracted from engaging with more of our senses. How have I, you seen that? I think we're just completely detached. I think COVID did the, the, dealt the church a mortal blow unless preachers begin to preach to their audience about you may be in sin staying at home. My The pastor I go at the church I go to now, he actually engaged his audience. And he said, if you're not bringing your children to church and you're not here, how are they even going to know how to go to church? Sitting in your chair comfortably in your pajamas is not an act of worship. It is a detached laziness. It's a laziness of spirits. Frankly, I couldn't stand home church. And I would go to any church that was open in the city, anywhere I could find it. And a few of them were brave enough to stay open here and there and all over because I wanted it to be live. I wanted to be there physically. I felt nothing. I obeyed God by listening during that time, but I wasn't interested as interested in it. And it's like I just heard somebody describe it on. I was glad they said it. They said going to church at home is like watching a video of a fireplace. A fireplace is full of smell and sound, not so much the gas ones, but, you know, they, and warmth. A video has no has only the eyes, hmm. but there's nothing else. There's no smell. There's no taste. There's no touch. There's no there's no sound. There's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that also touches on this other idea that I've been thinking about, too. I wrote for a paper in a class about um, it was classical communication theory, the- theology, and culture, and talking about how, in a sense, what technology has created, especially more in particular social media, and maybe that like that fireplace analogy could be really good for this, is the platonic illusion in terms That's of really good. there is the good, the true, and the beautiful. But what we're falling in love with and we're, we're encountering is this this illusion, this uh, platonic illusion in terms of it's a representation. Shadows, the shadows instead yes. of the reality. It's come from the cave. Plato's the cave, yes. Yes, so exactly. Like we're falling in love with this shadow. And in terms of like really living an embodied experience, what it means is that engaging the world, engaging your senses, walking down on the street. And how would you say that – what are some other – notable concerns you have seen from the maybe more in particular with the rise of the, of the smartphone and social media into integration of young people's lives there are so many i don't even know where to start it's terrifying to see what's happened um i think in a way where we're producing men and women without chests that sounds funny but it's a gest- chesterton in other words there's no dimension anymore maybe that was lewis that said that there's no dimension to us anymore we're thin we're insubstantial we're ghostly like the ghosts in the great divorce <clears throat> we're not standing on solid ground of course i have seen the entire in the range of my life i have gone from typewriters to smartphones and computers so it's a huge sway um I began doing media fasts with my classes, my English class, in the fall of 2009, and they had to go four days without anything, music, phone, nothing. They couldn't do anything except computer for class. And so I started taking the findings. I didn't know. I wasn't doing this deliberately. Eleven years later, I have 251 pages of findings. Wow. Because I began doing it in all my classes. Romance, anxiety, worship. Uh, boredom. It goes on and on. I need to write the book of their responses. It's terrifying. Most people do not think they're addicted. Most people come out saying they are addicted. And they're addicted in the sense of addiction. They can't leave it alone. They are anxious without it. They go to bed with it. They wake up with it. It's the first instinct of their lives. Think about what that has substituted for. No longer do people 
have, speak with anybody without a phone in front of them. The phone can interrupt anything. And therefore, nobody expects to be heard anymore and nobody hears anymore. We have become thin, thin versions of ourselves. I don't believe in screens in a, in a church. I don't, I, I don't believe, I think they're distracting to, they're distracting to me. It interrupts my worship. I don't want a preacher that preaches from a screen. Preach from the Bible, make it physical. These things are all distractions. At any given moment, you shouldn't have your devotions with a screen anywhere. And, and it, I, I do on my iPad read through the Bible with a reader, but not, if something comes up, I let it go. I don't have my notification sound on on my phone. I, it's a distraction, it interrupts. So we are constantly interrupted. And I would point everybody to an extremely important book, which my last year's TA gave me called, it's Mark Cummer's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a must read. It's written to this, your guys' generation. It's very modern. For me, it's a little irritating, but you know, it's got the different color pages and the bold face and the different, he is absolutely right. He discovered as a pastor, you probably know this, in a secret church that his life had no texture to it at all. And he simply withdrew started started having a small wardrobe, a lot less funky um, food, spending less, eliminated, didn't eliminate the smartphone probably, but maybe he got a cell phone, I can't remember that, but brought it down to, to basics, put enforced boundaries in his family, spent far more time in the outdoors. It was an absolute life change and it had everything to do with his spirit. We don't even know it, but we have interrupted our spirituality with this thing. The cell phone is most of our most people's lover. It is it's a mistress that is an unfaithful act to God. In the process of reading through the Bible uh, every day, I've just tried to enforce this discipline with this pastor from Australia reads to us and we follow along. We're in Leviticus and Numbers. You know these books are daunting. They're enough to send you over the edge. But what you begin to see is God had order, and He believed in detail. And he thought things should be holy. And this was looking forward, of course, to the, the new covenant with Jesus Christ. We, have, we, don't, we do exactly as we please. Uh, the, the thing that has changed so dreadfully and dramatically in students' lives, and there are so many, I, I have adjusted to loving my students no matter what. I love my students. I, they are, it's been the hardest thing in the world to think about retiring uh, because I love them so much. And because the act has been an act of, passion for me for all these years. I've grown, I grew up here, you know, but the sad thing is the lack of discipline, the lack of focus. Their entire lives are interrupted. I mean, I finally this semester, I was going to have them put all their phones in a basket. I allow no technology in my classroom unless I say you can, or somebody's got a special needs. I was going to put all their phones in the basket, but this time I've made sure that they turn them off when they come in. And I told them, I don't want to come into the classroom and see you on your phone. It's irritating to me. There has to be some, because they were they were on their phone till I started speaking, and then the minute I stopped speaking, out comes the phone again. It is it is like having an appendage, and the students saw it and they told the truth. The way it interrupts marriage is unbelievable. The way it it, it helps you it promotes conducting romance in very flawed ways, and so many students talk about how their mothers never cook anymore. Mothers aren't paying attention to their children. Those children are kind of like orphans. They don't pay attention to their pets. You know, talk to your pet as you're going down the street. Don't be on a phone. There is no, there is no connection to real life. Yeah, it definitely makes me think about how what the iPhone or what social media and technology as it becomes more integrated into our lives does is that it creates this feedback loop of 
instant gratification. Instant. Oh. And I think what also something I've seen too, especially maybe from more of my experience with Twitter, is talking about how we what we do is reduce these huge concepts, these very short polemical statements, and what it does is disregards nuance. And what that's very good literature I've seen does is that it provides nuance, nuance. provides context, and we need context to, yeah. in order to understand reality. And so it's like this self-perpetuating right. cycle where we don't have a long attention span. We desire instant gratification. So that means we don't gravitate towards the classics and good right. literature. It's too and much so work. It's too much work. And what do you think this you could see happening in the future with people in our generation in particular engaging with classics and literature maybe less and less? Oh, I think it's going to happen. I think I'm an, a dinosaur. I think I'm a throwback. I mean, I... Students talk about how much they have to read in my classes, and they take it take them anyway if they choose to. But I teach thirty percent less than I taught fifteen years ago. I can't get it out of students. I I think it's going to have to be a discipline of spirit. I think it's going to have to be. I hope that that the return to the Anglican Church. There's been so many people going to Anglican churches now. Although I'm not I'm not so sure that's happening there either. Uh, I, I don't even know what to say. We need prophets in our generation. Preachers aren't doing it, with mm. very few exceptions. Mm. I don't have a very, very positive feeling about the future. Mm. So I want to ask another question as well about your experience being here. You've seen multiple generations pass through here, and you've seen different generations, their trends and their desires and different things that they see that is relevant and important to their lives. Tell us some notable observations you've made from your over 50 years of experience here serving at Moody. Oh, my goodness. There isn't anything like it was. Nothing. Not in student life. I think we still have a theological core, which I personally do not believe is as firm as it was. I think it's been infected with wokeness and with um, cancel culture. It's come to us. And I think it's infecting the classroom where sometimes we think we don't. The first thing we think is not theologically, it's psychologically or it's, um, I don't know, you know, the trends that come and go socially, I suppose, culturally. Everything is cultural. I love students and I still love them just the same. And I think this generation, these last couple, I don't know how many generations I've been through, two or three generations are a little bit more open to certain things that they may, we may have been close to, but then it was a whole different era. But overall, I think there is a fluidity of theology, biblical thinking. I think cultural relevance is surpassing biblical solidity. And I think the one of the real big problems that's happened is that students are given way too much power. They are given way too much authority. They think they are the last word. Students cannot correct teachers. They are allowed to report on teachers, and they are taken seriously instead of somebody saying to them, where is your humility? Why would you do this? I think there's narcissism everywhere. That is not just in students. That is in the older generation, too. Everybody is about their resume. Everybody is about self-importance. Everybody is about rising through the ranks. Everybody is about being being uh, trendy or visible. Everything is, I'm going to blog, you know. I, I like C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to blog. Well, just shut up and read C.S. Lewis, you know. Everything is out there. Everything's external. And the internal quality of quiet, sobriety, in a way, the same thing that comes with AA, sobriety, containment, holding back, 
not not being so absolutely obsessed with visibility and understanding that your opinion is not the final opinion that your little group is not the last word on things we become so imitative of the social trends of the world we're more sensitive about certain things which we should be we should work on bias and prejudice it's the manner in which it's being being mm. done yeah i um I actually spent the second half of my life as a missionary kid in Japan. Oh, and wow. It's very fascinating seeing the different dichotomies between the two cultures. I kind of live in this in between the two spaces, and I see That's interesting. Many, many of the flaws I've seen in American culture have come to what you exactly you were talking about in terms of like the, the, the expressive individualism oh, that has come to pretty much define our ethic of how we very view well ourselves said. and society. And I remember when I was in... Japan, and this is more of like an Eastern, more East Asian context in terms of their culture and how it's influenced by Confucianism and collectivism and all that. But what I see in Japanese culture is that what the imperative or the ethic is for the collective, right? We think of my company, my family, my country. And that has its extremes too. It does, for sure. But we, yes. but we have yes. to have the balance. We have to have the balance. If you go off the deep end either way, you're in trouble. Yes. and That's very good. But, yeah, I see the flaws in American culture where it's like, okay, so according to the ethic we've, de we've devised in our society, it's not honorable to be a garbage man. It's not honorable oh. to be a train to oh. be a train conductor. I so, and it is. It is. Yes, exactly. Yes. I, I, there is no job too small. I mm -hmm. mean, I was taught you work. You work no matter what you do. Yes. Yeah. And it's – yeah, as I remember as I grew up as a kid, like every – Every position has their honor. What Where honor is defined is more about your commitment to your field rather than how much you get paid or how famous you are or how polemical yeah. you are with your statements yeah. and rhetoric. That's really good. And it's really frustrating to see where I'm like the garbage men or society keep our society from being not being infested. The plumbers. Thank God for the garbage men. And the, they make a lot more money than we do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but maybe they, it should be, yeah. yeah. But to say I'm a garbage man, and, and it's to, I feel feel for the people here that, that are janitors and stuff, I, I always try to be extra nice to them and thank them because they're important to us. They are not less than anybody. I have even heard people say here, you know, this wasn't good enough. I was led to be this top dog. Well, why? Why would you say something like that? I, I think you should do what you're good at. I... I suppose through the years, although I, you know, I'm very outspoken, so it probably wouldn't have happened easily. I never wanted to be a manager. I never wanted to be a department head because I'm. I like to teach, but you kind of feel this sort of pressure that you haven't arrived unless you keep. I don't care. I don't want to climb the ladder. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very different from. Yeah, the, you know, I, I observe on LinkedIn how we kind of portray ourselves in our career, and it's always like you have to be progressing up. You always you have, be, this have to be language. notable. Yeah. It's always the manager that gets the honor and not the person who's yeah, faithfully exactly right. serving in his role because he's not an outspoken person or he's not a good public speaker, but he's faithfully serving in his role. And I think that's definitely something that I've seen notable in terms of how we view our own like theology of work. And so I maybe, agree with you. Maybe you could, I want to see if you can expand maybe a bit on your view of what a good theology of work is. How does someone in that's growing up today, trying to figure out what to do with their career. Like, what is the approach with which they First should First of all, you work. People don't want to work anymore. We are now in a culture in, in the United States uh, at this particular time in history where a huge percentage of people aren't working because they got handouts from the government. And that has completely corrupted them. I don't understand why they don't want to work. I'm 73 years old, 
I want to work. I don't. I, I have reasons why I have retired, but it, it, they're not. What was hard was that I like to work. You should want to work. The tension is you work, and your vocation is separate from your work. It may come together. In my case, it did. But there are a lot of people who have to work to make a living, and their vocation is separate from that. Work should never own you, but you should always work. All through Scripture, there is a... And parents need to teach little tiny children to work. My mother had me making my bed by the time I was three. And by the way, everybody should make their bed that listens to this. That's order, discipline, beauty, work. So you work no matter what. I've had friends married to men who, well, they couldn't get the job they wanted. So they just didn't work. They need to go out and get a job at Walmart. They need to get a job at a gas station. That's honorable. I dated a man for a number of years who, uh, for certain reasons, um, lost his job, not because of any fault of his own. He did anything, and he had been a professional for 40 years. He went out and he got any lo- any job he could to keep working. That's honorable. Mm. It doesn't define us, but it is a measure of character. Mm, mm. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, I've seen the different. I think, I think I've seen a different trend in terms of like maybe. With the millennial generation versus the Gen Z generation in terms of the post-recession society that we live in, it seems that, like, at least maybe from my observation, I've seen maybe in Gen Z it was a bit more of, like, hey, I deserve this job. Um, Sorry, with millennials. And so, but, yeah, society seems to always be in this sort of flux in terms of how we view work ethic today. But, yeah, I definitely agree, like, there needs to be a love for work in terms of, and I think I've also seen a trend on YouTube as well talking about I don't dream of work anymore. It's like I want a dream job, and so some people say I don't dream of labor, but I see so much beauty in terms of oh. work, in terms of how we God said to cultivate the land, to cultivate yeah. here, to fill and subdue, and that's definitely I see kind of lacking in terms of people want to go out and like travel and do van life, and I there's there's I don't think. Take your six months and do it. Yeah. Then yeah. shut up about it and get to work. Yeah. Do it. I mean, it used to be in my generation that people would go off right after college and maybe travel for three or four months. Travel was very cheap. You'd get on your mm-hmm. rail. I did it myself. But then they came back to work. Yeah. It, it was a choice. But then you came back to work. And I don't mean workaholism. I come from a kind of workaholic family. I don't mean that because that can be an infection too. Mm-hmm. But oh, it's yeah. work in its its right measure. Mm. Laziness is a terrible quality. Mm. And it's something you should watch in anybody you date or get hooked up with. Yeah. Yeah, I think I want to touch a bit more too about relationships and how you've seen that change. And what is some some solid what are some notable things you've noticed about relationships today in the 21st century? And what is some advice you would give to people? Well, the phone has changed everything. Mm-hmm. So keep kids get too close too fast in a shallow way. Mm. So before the phone, I always tell people this, you know, there was one black phone on your hallway. My parents didn't even have a telephone ever until the very last 20 years of their life. So you, you had that black telephone, and if somebody wanted to call you, you had 10 minutes uh, you didn't have anything in your hands, so if you were if you had a crush on somebody, you had to wait till you saw them in the hallway or standing by the locker, and it was sort of terribly exciting. And then you didn't get to know each other fast because you had to be together, and those dates were limited. So, and and your parents would never have let you stay on three or four hours on the phone. So what happens is there is this almost blowing of fuses. They get to know each other. They start texting. 
It encourages women to be undignified and be too aggressive in the relationship, which is a very bad thing. And it encourages uh, constant talking, talking, being together. There's no surprises anymore. If you go off to the mission field to do your internship, you can always have FaceTime or look at each other. There's no waiting three months and then having that huge excitement of seeing each other again after a long separation. We have destroyed anticipation. We have destroyed the long, slow advance of intimacy. It, it's too fast and maybe it's not very real. Uh, we overtalk our relationships uh, and we don't rely on language. There's no letters written. Texts are not letters. I've had many, uh, any number of very thoughtful couples that decided to do it differently. And they and usually the man leads the way, which is very good, but the woman may resist too. And they don't text. And they call each other over their spring break maybe once a week. They try to, they try to write each other letters. These things are good. They are civilities. They are beauties of the spirit. We're destroying beauty, over-talking, badly talking in these horrible abbreviations that go on on texting. And what do you have at the end of it? Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very fascinating how relationships and our dynamics have changed across with yeah. how technology has been integrated. And I've seen a, a phenomenon. I saw some statistic that said one in four people in Generation Z will stay single their whole lives and how technology, in a sense, has abstracted us from social circles. Um, it's inhibited our social I think social I just delays. saw something written about that. And not only that, of course, te technology, we can't avoid saying this, has, has brought in the problem of pornography. And pornography, I think Japan is the country where they say a huge percentage of the young men never even go out of the house anymore. Mm -hmm. And the seniors are dying of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And it, because pornography has become relationship, it has become the substitute. And that, of course, is the death of any real relationship. And so then people stay single because there's an effort to has to be made to relate to another person. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how, yeah, in Japan, particularly more various aspects of the relational experience in terms of a relationship have been commoditized. A conversation at a cafe, you can pay for that. Any, uh, any, pretty much any aspect of a relationship, or you can even rent a family. It's it's Horrible. crazy phenomena. Why and anybody would be satisfied with so little? It means that your soul has shriveled and you don't want anything anymore. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. I see how I didn't know about that. Commercialization and commoditization, in a sense, has made it so that we live shallow substances of reality, shallow yeah. experiences. In terms and a real experienced, meaningful life means relationships, it needs relationships. deep rooted relationships. Yeah. And yeah, that's definitely something that I've seeing that is needed in this generation as well um, in terms of how, yeah, with online, school, school online, work from home, how we become so abstracted from in-person mm -hmm. events and interactions. And I see also statistics about how Gen Z, they have very high levels of social anxiety. Like they oh, struggle horrible, with horrible. interacting with people. Sometimes I wonder if some of these psychiatric diseases everybody talks about anymore, even some ADD, and some of that is, is caused by what's happened with technology from the time. If you give a screen to a child when they're one, you've given them a weapon in a way, and you've given them a soul deadener. And Yes, I, I agree. Oh, students are so anxious, and they, they take themselves so seriously mm. that every little thing, a symptom, becomes a point of identity. I mean, we just didn't have that luxury. So you're depressed? I don't care. Shut up and go to class. To a fault mm -hmm. when I was in, in high when mm. college. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. DeRose, our time is coming up to a close soon. I have one more question to ask you. This is our special question, which I'm asking to every professor. And 
For you, this may be very hard to answer, but what is one book that you think <laughs> everyone should read, obviously aside from the Bible? Yeah. Oh, it's such a hard question. But I did land on Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. And it's one of the great classics of all time. You can read it in many versions. I think there's even maybe a good movie version that came out in the last little bit. But you need to read the book. And you need to raise your children on it, too. It is a book that interprets life to you. And he, he wrote it in prison without the Bible. It was completely conversant with the Bible. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. Well, Dr. De Rose, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we hope to hear from you again in the future, and we hope you all have a good day. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moody Profcast. The Moody Profcast is a production hosted, produced, and edited by Jonah Swenson in partnership with the professors of the Moody Bible Institute. Graphics are by Aaron Goodfellow. The music featured is a song, Autumn 2011 by Locksbeats. We'd also like to thank Moody Radio and the Moody Communications Department for letting us use their facilities for this production. Tune in again to the Moody Profcast to learn more about how theology intersects with our culture.